Thank you for downloading and listening to the Briam Bible Church Sunday Morning Podcast. Briam Bible Church is located in Shoreline, Washington, morning worship at 11, and many more events throughout the week. For more information, please visit our website at www.bereanshoreline.org. Thanks, worship team, for sharing this morning, leading us in worship. Let's have a word of prayer before we open God's word together. Heavenly Father, at this time of the service, we open your word. We do so as the continued act of our worship to you. We thank you for your word. Thank you for the freedom we have to read it, proclaim it, and share it. And we ask now that our hearts would be open to it this morning. In Christ's name, amen. I wonder how many of you have ever had an experience, uh, maybe your mother tried to help you out. You ever had that experience of mom uh, going to a coach and saying, I, I think my son should get more playing time? Maybe, could my son start? Could my daughter start on this team? Could they get more playing time? Could my uh, son or daughter, uh, maybe they should get the lead part in the drama. Uh, maybe they should get better grades. Maybe you ever had your mom try to help you out before? You know, you aren't going to raise your mom's here. <laughs> my mom tried to help me out a few times, but she was pretty good about not doing that too much. Matthew chapter 20, we read this morning of a mother trying to help her sons out. Matthew chapter 20, our text this morning, we are reading the New Testament together uh, throughout the week. And uh, each week, if you, if you don't get the church emails, uh, just uh, let us know. Put, fill out the little card there in front of you. Just put your note on there. We'd like to receive it. We send an email out each week. And so we try to let you know what the, the passage for the week we'll be studying, uh, preaching on, and so you can read it and prepare your hearts for it. In Matthew chapter 20, as was read this morning, verse 20. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons and kneeling down asked a favor of him. She wants to help out a little bit here. What is it you want? He asked, Jesus asked. And she said, Grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. You don't know what you are asking, Jesus said to them. Can you drink the cup I am going to drink? We can, they answered. And Jesus said to them, You will indeed drink from my cup, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my Father. A mother's request. Pretty bold request. Now, I will have to say, if you read the Gospel of Mark, you will find in Mark that actually it says there that the two disciples came and asked Jesus this question. It's the exact same account. So Mark and Matthew, we put the two together, and you know Matthew expands a little bit. Matthew has more of the narrative than Mark does. So I, I, I think what I would say probably is going on here is they are coming together. Mark, uh, or Matthew, um, excuse me, the mother and the two disciples are coming together, and the mother may be the spokesman. But lest you think it's just simply a mother trying to help out, uh, the boys have asked as well. They've made a very bold request. And when we think of the context here, and of the last several weeks, we've been in this uh, part of Matthew. Last week, when uh, I'm calling Pastor Caleb now, he's an associate pastor in uh, Granville, Michigan. And uh, he shared with us uh, about the parable of the wheat and the tares. And this section of parables in this part of the, of the Gospel of Matthew is really talking about this, this coming kingdom. And I just ask you once again to put yourself as much as you can 
in this context, when you, when you read the scriptures and when you uh, read these, especially these historical accounts, put yourself in this context. These disciples are heading toward Jerusalem. Uh, they, have, they have told Jesus, don't go to Jerusalem. If you read all the Gospels together, and Jesus says, I'm going to Jerusalem. In fact, at one point, I think it's Thomas who says, let's go and die with him. And so they know it's dangerous. They're going to Jerusalem. He has been talking about the coming kingdom. They have every reason to expect it is right around the corner. Why wouldn't it be? He has told them the king is here. He has talked about the fact that it's going to be coming. If you read the next several chapters, what's known as the Olivet Discourse in preparation for next week, you will see clearly this strong teaching. And you can understand their anticipation for this Messianic kingdom. Every Jew in Palestine and around the world was anticipating this great kingdom where the Messiah would come and rule on earth and he would, and he would subdue their enemies. And these disciples have been part of Jesus' inner circle. These are the twelve. And if you go back just one chapter, in chapter 19, and verse 28, at the end of the account of the rich young ruler who, who comes and Jesus says to him, uh, you know, sell everything you have, give to the poor, and come and follow me. And, and he goes away sad. And in this context, and they talk about the, Jesus talks about the difficulty for those who are, who are in love with their riches to enter the kingdom of heaven. And, 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 and they said, in fact, they're so astonished in verse 25, they said, well, who can be saved then? And, and Jesus says, with men, this is impossible, with God, all things. In verse 27, Peter answered him, we have left everything to follow you. They had. These, these men were, you know, these were businessmen. You know, this fishing was a lucrative business on the Sea of Galilee. It was one of the food staples in, in Galilee, and, and, the, and the, the food was shipped all over this area. It was a good business. These men were businessmen. They walked away from their nets. They walked away from their income. They walked away from their family businesses and left everything to follow Jesus. They left their income. They left their security uh, as, as Madeline said, you know, to, to, to let God direct and to let go. These men let go of everything. Uh, Matthew walked away from his tax collector's booth. And uh, it was a good business, a lucrative business. And Peter says, Lord, we've left everything. What is it? Well, look what it says. What then will there be for us? What, what's in this for us? And Jesus said, I tell you the truth, in verse 28, at the renewal, that's a good translation, the NIV here, at the renewal, it's, it's only used twice in the New Testament, this particular Greek word. At the renewal of all things, in this context, you're a Jew, you're listening to him. You know he's talking about the kingdom. You know that. When the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you, you twelve who have followed me, will also sit on the twelve thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. So these disciples have been promised already that they will sit on the twelve thrones of Israel. Now listen, they are taking this literally. They are not thinking of this as metaphorical or allegorical or something else. This is a literal promise to these twelve disciples. And of course we know Judas will, will, will not be one of those, but he will be replaced. And he, there will be twelve disciples. And, it, and Jesus says, you will sit on twelve thrones in my kingdom. You know, I will be in the middle. You, you will sit on the twelve thrones and you will judge the twelve tribes of Israel during this Messianic glorious kingdom age. So these disciples are already promised that they will sit with Jesus and rule. This is the context at 
the regeneration. We, at our church, and our understanding of Scripture, we believe this is going to be filled literally. Why wouldn't it be? And if you look back in history, when has it ever been fulfilled? When have the twelve disciples sat and ruled over the twelve tribes of Israel? It has not taken place yet, but it will during that coming Messianic kingdom. This is the context. I also want to suggest to you there may be a family connection here. Now, um, th- this is one of those things we can't be dogmatic. When I say that, I can't say for 100% assurance this is it. You're not entitled to any other opinion. Okay. But if you read the Gospels carefully, and you read all four of the Gospels, and sometimes if you happen to own a harmony of the Gospels where you can lay out all four of the Gospels together, we'll see that, and and some very fine Greek scholars of our generation, D.A. Carson for one, uh, suggest that this is a very strong possibility. And if you notice here, uh, I'm going to put this up if we could, um, Cliff. In Matthew 27... This, this is the account of the, of the crucifixion, at the end of the crucifixion. It says in Matthew 27, Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of Zebedee's sons. So that mother of Zebedee's sons clearly is the same one we have here who has come to Jesus and asked this request for James and John. Now in John chapter 19, verse 25, it says, Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother... His mother's sister, I'm sorry the comma got displaced to the wrong, the next line down there. It's his mother's sister, comma, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. So Mary, the mother of Jesus, has a sister. She's unnamed. And she is standing there at the cross with the Marys, this lady. In Mark, the same passage, he tells us, among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and younger the younger and Joseph, and Salome, or Salome. So if we put those together, many, many throughout history, in fact, many artists have done pictures of this scene and so on, that there's a good possibility that this wife of Zebedee, of the, these two sons, is the mother of Mary, which would make her Jesus' aunt. And the two sons would be Jesus' first cousins. Again, I'm not going to say that with 100% assurance, but there's a pretty strong, there's an unnamed sister of Mary at the cross, and putting those together, many Bible scholars feel that is this woman we're talking about. So they've been promised they could sit in the 12 tribes of Israel. It's possible that these two are Jesus' cousins. This is his aunt. And so it would make, maybe make perfectly good sense for her to come to him and say, Lord, Let these two sit on your right and your left. They deserve it. So that's the bold request, and that's the background among that, putting that together. And I want you to notice the response of Jesus to this bold request of Salome, or Salome, or the mother of Zebedee's sons. Jesus simply says in verse 22, uh, you, You cannot know what you are asking. You do not know what you are asking. You don't comprehend, you don't understand what this means. Jesus, did did they catch the part, you know, on your bulletin this morning, if you notice the verse on your bulletin, each week um, we put a verse in the bulletin, and who's ever preaching that Sunday picks that out, and this week the one I chose is the one that just precedes this, because this is really the essential passage in this whole section of Matthew here. Now, as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples. You can read it here, you can read it in your Bible, Matthew 20, 17, 18. 
And he said, we are going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests, teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will turn him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. On the third day, he will be raised to life. This is the heart and soul of the gospel. This is the heart and soul of this section of scripture here. And we know from Mark, when Mark records this, he simply tells us, but the disciples did not understand this because it was hidden from them. They did not understand this. I'm sorry, Luke. Luke chapter 18. They did not understand this. Its meaning was hidden from them. And they did not know what he was talking about. They heard him say it. They knew it was dangerous. They knew they were going to Jerusalem. But they didn't catch this. That he was going to be beaten and, and whipped and turned over to the Gentiles and hung on a cross in the third day to rise again. And Jesus says to the mother, you don't understand. You don't know what you are asking. Yes, they will sit in the twelve tribes of Israel. But the right and the left hand is only given to God to decide. Jesus says the Father will determine that. Maybe it will, maybe it won't be her sons. But only God the Father has that right to decide this glorious kingdom who is going to sit on either side during this kingdom. And then Jesus says to them at the end of verse 22, Can you drink the cup I am going to drink? In the Old Testament, the cup is oftentimes associated with judgment, with retribution. This cup is the, is the cup of suffering, the cup of death and punishment that Jesus is going to suffer. We, we read in the Bible about the cup of God's wrath being poured out. And the cup of God's wrath, as it will, were poured out on Jesus Christ as he hung on the cross of Calvary and died. And Jesus says, can, can you, do you know what you're asking? Are you willing to go with me through this whole thing? Are you willing to, to, to partake what I'm going to partake about, to partake with my cup? Can you drink of the same cup? Can you drink of the same cup that I'm going to suffer? And the boys answer, <clears throat> the boys answer, the disciples, yes, we can. We can drink of this. And Jesus prophetically says, you will indeed drink from this cup. Now, as we read in the book of Acts, as we studied Acts together last year, we saw that this James, this particular James, not James, the brother of the Lord, but the Apostle James, became the first martyr of all the apostles. He was the first one to be brutally killed and to give his life, to spill his blood, for being a disciple of Jesus Christ. John, the other one, who says, yes, we can, he is the last of the living apostles. We read, uh, we, we, we believe, it was close to the end of the first century. And he was in exile when he wrote the book of Revelation. Most likely was martyred as well. And Jesus says, yes, you will drink of it. You will indeed drink of this. But you don't know what you're asking, and I can't give this to you. They knew they were going to Jerusalem. But you know what's interesting about this? Do you notice Jesus' response to them? Do you notice Jesus' response? It's really not harsh. It, I mean, I, I, can't, I don't have the nuances here. I wish we did sometimes of the, the facial expression, the language, and so on. It doesn't appear to be harsh, does it? Like sometimes when he accuses the, the Pharisees for their disbelief, uh, for their, for their uh, hypocrisy, the, the scribes and teachers of the law... His, 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 his response to them is, is very kind. It's very understanding. It's not even hardly condemning. He just says, you don't know what you're asking. You will drink of the cup. 
I can't even tell you this, at least these disciples have faith. I mean, let's give that to them. You know, we look at this and say, wow, that was rather bold to go forward and say, can my son sit on your right and your left in the kingdom? As long as they're going to, as long as they're going to be ruling the twelve tribes anyway, how about putting them at the right? Let them start, you know. Let them be in the right or the left. At least they had genuine, firm faith that it was going to happen. There is no doubt in their mind there is going to be a kingdom. That Jesus is going to rule. That Jesus is the Messiah. And they display and they, and they proclaim their faith by asking, can we sit with you in the right or left? Let's give that to them. And, and Jesus' response to them is, is really quite, quite kind and, 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 and very compassionate as he responds to them. Not so the other ten. In verse 24, when the ten heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. Does that surprise you? Does that surprise you? Uh, you know human nature pretty well, right? We have a tendency to look out for ourselves. What is the source of their indignation? Why are they so indignant about... Well, actually, another interesting question. How did they even find out about this? You think the two went away and said, Hey, guys, listen, this is what we, guess, what, guess what Mom just did? You know? Guess what Jesus said? It doesn't tell us how they, if they were listening in or what exactly. My guess is they probably were there listening in. But somehow the word got back to the other ten. They were indignant. They were angry. What is the reason for this indignation? What is the basis for such anger? This is a strong word. They were not just a little bit disappointed in their friends. Uh, This is a crisis in this team. This is a team of, of 12. And this is a real critical time in the ministry. And this is a real crisis in their relationship. And, 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 they, and they are angry with these two. And they're angry with their mother. And maybe if these guys were the cousins of Jesus, maybe they were particularly angry that they thought they could use this to somehow... But what are they angry about? It's because they are... Maybe they want to be in the right or left. Maybe Peter wants to be there. You know, they have just as much right as any of them. And in fact, we know that this group had this tendency at times to argue about things. Because in, we, we read in Matthew chapter 18, they, they came to Jesus in verse 1 and they said, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And if you read in Mark chapter 9, you can write this down, in Mark chapter 9 verse 33 one day, in about this same context, so it may have been what Matthew records in Matthew 18, because it's about the same time in Mark, is a story where Jesus says, Hey guys, what were you arguing about on the way down here? Uh, again, uh, uh, parents, you ever, you know, what, what are you guys arguing about? Nothing. <laughs> Christ as the coming Messiah. And at the, and at the, and the eve of that, just before that, is this crisis. And I want you to notice how Jesus responds. This, Jesus responds to his disciples. It, it's a very, what we, we used to call, when I we used to call this, I remember in Christian education, we used to talk about the teachable moment. You know, there are moments when something comes up where it's a real opportunity to teach something. The context just lends itself to teach something. This is a very teachable moment. Jesus could get angry with them. Jesus could scold them. He could put everything in order real quickly. But notice his response to them. After they were indignant, and Jesus called them in verse 25. And he says this, listen now, you know 
that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. That is, of the Gentiles. He's talking about the Romans here. Not so with you. Now, what are we not to be like? This teachable moment, Jesus says, listen, all of you know full well what it's like to live under Roman authority. If you study the history of, of humanity, uh, you know, democracy, as we understand it, is a, is a relatively late development. Yes, it has its roots in, in Greece and so on, but they had nothing compared to what we have today. And this is common throughout history, and it's common in many places of the world. In fact, uh, just reading yesterday, it was in Wall Street Journal, a response to an article about the severe persecution of Christians around the world, especially in the Middle East and in Asia today. Severe persecution. We heard about it at uh, Fidelia at the Salmon Bake on Thursday from uh, Shreen and Golshan's parents as they shared with us about the work in Turkmenistan. And, and it's interesting how, how it's pretty quiet about that. You don't hear much about that. You don't hear much about the persecution of Christians and pastors that are in jail and people being killed for their faith and their ministry. Jesus says, you know what it's like. Those in authority make the decisions and, and you take it. You live with it. You have no recourse. They, those in authority and are layers of authority and they lord it over you and they tell you what to do and you do it. You have no recourse. And Jesus says, you're well aware of how this works in the Gentile world. But here's the example that I want you to follow. Verse 27. Well, verse 26. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And the, word, the word there is the word we get deacon from. Diakonos. It's the word we get deacon from. It's the same word that is used often for for elders and pastors as well. Uh, those who want to serve in the church, your elders, your leaders in this church, your pastors, we are not here to lord it over you, to tell you never dare question what we say or do. But we are here as servants. We are servants. And that's the word he uses here. Whoever wants to be great among you must become your servant. And whoever wants to be first... And the next time, this next time he uses a word for slave. They're two different words. Whoever wants to be first must be your slave. This is the lowest rung you can go. It, some have suggested that maybe up to a third of the population during this time were either in servanthood or slavery during this Roman era. Who are you to copy? The leaders of the Gentile world who lord it over you and tell you what to do and you do it? Or are you going to copy the Lord Jesus Christ? And he uses himself as the example. Verse 28. Just as the Son of Man. This is, this is in this context of these men grumbling and complaining and their indignation at the two for asking this. And their mother. And Jesus says, Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The next thing that happens is two men that are blind receive their sight. Blindness over the nation of Israel is a big theme in the rejection of Christ as Messiah. And then the next thing is Palm Sunday where he comes to present himself as the Messiah, but coming to die on the cross at Calvary first to offer himself for our sins. 
And it's in this context, at this critical moment, this teachable moment, that the Lord Jesus Christ says, listen, you have a choice. You can be like the Gentile leaders, or you can be like me. You can be like me. And I came for the purpose of serving and to give my life as a ransom, a a big Old Testament word, a ransom to pay for sin and to bring salvation, to bring you back to God and to give you the opportunity for eternal life. Friends, I want to suggest to you as we pick the title for this sermon that this is the principle for all ages, all dispensations, from beginning to end. You will find this key principle in the Scriptures of God's people that we are called to be servants and to be humble. Did you listen to the passage that our worship team read to you this morning from Colossians? In Ephesians and Colossians, you have almost identical passages that speak of this. In Colossians chapter 3, as was read to us, Therefore, verse 12, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other. Forgive as you have been forgiven. Not indignation. Not putting yourself forward. Not requesting to sit the right or left. But to clothe yourself with humility. Humility. To clothe yourself with a servant's attitude. And in the book of Ephesians, this is a key theme as Paul takes what he teaches in chapters 1, 2, and 3. Those wonderful doctrines that he teaches and unfolds. And then when we come to chapter 4, this in fact, as we've mentioned before, is the passage that, that our church doctrinal statement and constitution is built upon. There is one body, one spirit, the unities that we have. But preceding that, he says, as a prisoner for the Lord, I urge you, live a life worthy of your calling you have received. You want to be worthy of the calling we have as Christians. We call ourselves Christ ones, Christians. How are we worthy of that calling? Look at the first thing he says. Be completely humble and gentle. Humble and gentle. Listen, friends. The Apostle Paul said, We are servants of Christ to the Corinthians for your sake. Paul says in Thessalonians, We do not take advantage. Paul was, Paul was an apostle just as much as the other. The others. He was the apostle to the Gentile world, he clearly says. And Paul says, yet I did not make use of this role, this title of apostle, but instead we became your servants for the gospel's sake, for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this morning, I want you to take this home with you today, friends. How can you practice this? The Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 5 says, Be imitators of God, verse 1. Therefore, as dearly loved children. I use this passage at every wedding that I do. If you practice this, how can you lose? You can't go wrong. Live a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave Himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Be imitators of God. Live lives worthy of the calling of Christian, of Christ one. And how shall we do this? We are called to be humble and servants 
and slaves of others. And as you go home today, I want you to take this home with you. And I ask you this, I ask you this question. How can you practice this principle in your life? Every one of you are in various relationships. As I look at you today, I can think of the multiple relationships you are in. Some of you are in administration. Some of you own businesses. Some of you have people working for you, responsible to report to you. You report to others. You work for others. You have families. You have neighbors. You have a church family. You have a wife or a husband if you're married. You have parents if you're children. You have children if you're parents. All these multiple relationships. And God has called us to be humble and to be servants in our relationships. Jesus said, listen, for those of you, if you want to be great, and you might look at that and say, well, wow, that's kind of a, you know, if I stand here and say, I want to be great, that in itself sort of doesn't go along with humility, does it? But if you think of it in terms, if you want to be successful, if you want to have success in what God has called you, what God has given you, if you want to be successful in your relationships, in your marriage, in your family, in your work, in your neighborhood, in your school, with your friends, if you want to be successful as a Christian, God says, be a servant. This, listen, friends, this, this would not connect with the world, the first century Greco-Roman world that they were in, because this was demeaning. If you think about it, if you're an employer, if you're an administrator, if you have people that work for you or under you, if your goal is to help them be the best they can be and to be successful and to treat them, to do what you can to help them be those kind of people, you will be successful in what you do. If you work for someone else and you have a responsibility to somebody, is your goal to make them successful, to help them be the best they can be, to serve them, if you do that, you will be successful in what you do. Husbands and wives, if your goal is to serve your spouse, be humble, be committed to one another, how can you go wrong if, you're, if your goal is to serve? And if, if two people have that attitude, and it's not a matter of, I don't know what you want, I don't know what you want, I don't, that's not worth talking about, you know what I mean. But it's the idea that if your goal is to be a servant, how can you help your spouse to become the, 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 the best person they can be? How can you encourage them to grow in their walk with Christ? How can you help them? How can you pray for them? Madeline has shared with us an opportunity she had. You know, young people when they graduate can take opportunity to, to go out and have fun. And this was, there was some fun involved, I'm sure. You know? But this was an opportunity to serve, to give. To go be a servant to these people in Africa. And there's quite a cost involved with that. Not just financial, but in many ways as she shared. If you want to be successful, serve. Listen, friends, I encourage you today. God wants us. This is a trans-dispensational, cuts across the ages. God wants us to be people who are willing to serve and to put others first. In every relationship you have, you can do this with the power of of the Holy Spirit and the power of God. Who wants to truly succeed, Jesus says. And I love the way Jesus treats his disciples here. I love the way he treats them. He had every reason to scold them and to get indignant himself. But with all of them, the two that ask and their mother, the ten that are indignant, he pulls them aside and he teaches them, listen, if you want to succeed, you be like me. I have not come to be served, but I have come to serve. Sometimes the hardest time to do this is in times of adversity. 
times of difficulty, times when you're maybe being mistreated, and to serve in those situations. And I'll close with this. In 2 Samuel chapter 16, there's a point in King David's life. This is why I show you it cuts across the ages. There's a point in King David's life where he was being run off the throne in 2 Samuel chapter 16 by his own son. He's being chased out of Jerusalem. He's leaving the throne in 2 Samuel chapter 16 by his own son. He's being chased out of Jerusalem. He's leaving in disgrace. And he leaves his throne. He leaves his kingship that God has promised him that there will always be a, a king from your family on the throne in Jerusalem. And as he's leaving, in verse 5, as King David approached Bahurim, he's, he's leaving with his, his soldiers and his close group around him. He's being kicked out of his throne. A man from the same clan as Saul's family came out from there. His name was Shammai, son of Gerah. And he cursed as he came out. And he pelted David and all the king's officials with stones. All by himself. This guy's an army, except he's throwing stones at David and David's officials on the right and left. And as he cursed, he said, Get out, you man of blood, you scoundrel. The Lord has repaid you for all that you've done. He's handed you over. In verse 9, Abishai, son of Zariah, said to the king, I mean, he has an army around him. He, he, he's leaving his throne, but he has his bodyguard. He has those loyal to him. And Abishai says, uh, David, why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go over and cut off his head. He's throwing rocks at him and swearing at him and cursing him. And David just keeps on going. And, and this guy says, let me, I'll, okay, David, I'll take care of it. I'll go. And the king says, no. He says, what do you and I have in common, you sons of Zeruha? If he is cursing because the Lord said to him, curse David, who can ask, why do you do this? And David said to Abishai and all of his officials, my son, who is my own flesh, is trying to take my life. How much more of this Benjamite? Leave him alone. Let him curse. For the Lord has told him to do this. It may be that the Lord has seen my distress and repaid me with good for the cursing I am receiving this day. And he kept on going. And the guy kept following him and throwing rocks at David and his soldiers. How humiliating for these soldiers who had led David into victory to be, have rocks and cursing from this goofball up in the hills who's, who they could go up and cut his head off like that. And David says, no. He says, maybe God's told him to do that. And you notice, notice what he says? He puts it in God's hands. And he says, listen. Maybe God will see my distress, in verse 12, and repay me with good for what I'm, this cursing I'm taking this day. It's easy to be a servant when things are going well. But especially when people are not kind to you. When that person above you or below you at your work is making your life miserable. When that family member, maybe even a spouse, child, a parent, neighbor, fellow student is making life difficult for you. That's the time especially that God has called us to be imitators. Look at the cross of Calvary. When was it shown the greatest? When He was being pelted and beat and crucified. And He said, Father, say with me, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. Be imitators of God as dearly loved children and live a life of love and compassion and humbleness as God has called us to do.
Come and close with our final song. Blessed be the tie that binds. Stand with us, please. Our Heavenly Father, we indeed thank you this day for the privilege of being called Christians, Christ-wise. And Lord, we pray for the strength and the insight this week to live a life of love and of service to others. May we truly be servants. May we follow in the footsteps of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ. To see how he served, how he gave. And Lord, we pray for that spirit in each of our relationships this day. And Lord, I pray if there be a person here today as we leave this place who has never received Christ as Savior, that they would open their hearts to the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ, that Jesus died on the cross to pay for their sins because he came to be a ransom and to serve and to give his life. And he offers them eternal life today. And friend, he offers you eternal life and forgiveness for sins if you would say yes to God. I encourage you this day to come and talk to me after service. I'd love to step aside and pray with you. Receive Christ's forgiveness for your sins. Bless us as we leave this place and we go forth rejoicing in the joy of our Lord Jesus Christ, the communion of the saints, we leave this place. Amen.